Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org and this is Christagenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, February 8th, 2019. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. This evening we are going to present a short paper from Clifton Emmerheiser titled Be Kind to Your Kind. Clifton had originally prepared this paper for publication on June 24, 2006. I am presenting this at the current time because I tried to rush the last presentation in my commentary on the Gospel of John, and I made a serious error which was pointed out to me by a friend at the Christagenia Forum. So I will present that afresh and with much more time and consideration, hopefully next Friday. I also hope that having taken some time off this week, I have had some needed rest. Otto, our Weimaraner, benefited because I was able to assemble a doghouse and a few other things he desperately needed in his new kennel. So I would also like to say that while it seems that I have been close to completion for a while now, my tasks in the aftermath of the hurricane are finally actually getting there, finally actually actually nearing completion. And I expect to be done moving out of our old house by early next week, so long as the weather is fair. I thought it would we would be finished at least a few weeks ago, but we have had some obstacles to our progress. We still have a lot of work to do to settle in here at our new home, but we are close to accomplishing that as well. Actually, homemaking is a task which never ends. We have found over the last five or six months in the course of our relationship that a certain supposed friend to whom we had extended our charity had really only sought to take advantage of us, thinking that perhaps he had some permanent license and entitlement, while at the same time he never complied with the terms which we had agreed upon when we first gave him shelter. More recently, this man even went so far as attempting to exalt himself as an elder above me in my own home, claiming that he did not have to live by the few simple house rules which I had imposed upon him and which he constantly and willfully disregarded. He professed this idea several times since the recent hurricane that he did not have to obey my own wishes my wishes in my own house which was just incredible to me I don't even know what to say in response to that but even with that my charity towards him continued until he began slandering me secretly, and now he suddenly slanders me openly. He is resentful that we discontinued our charity in the face of his 
arrogance, as if he had some sort of entitlement. This same character had been promoting my work at Christagenia on his Facebook pages and in various groups for the past several years. However, rather recently he professed to me that cutting and pasting my work on Facebook, along with Clifton's work, was his so-called ministry, and that he expects to collect tithes from it. He had said that he had several people sending him monthly tithes for that purpose. He claimed to do it out of love, but it was really only for profit. Now, I really do not care who helps who. I do not care who sends money to who. I don't even want to know. It is not even any of my business. But if a man living in my home shares my work and expects to profit from it for himself while giving me nothing, then that is stealing. And as this man lived freely in my home, and while Clifton was present, he therefore also stole from us in that manner the entire year that he lived there. He justified pressing people for tithes by citing Galatians chapter 6, verse 6, where Paul wrote, Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teaches in all good things. But this man never imagined communicating anything to his own teachers, or at least to those whom he was merely copying from while pretending to be a teacher of others. I can only say that may Yahweh reward him for his fraud. We don't even press people for tithes. I've even done biblical exegesis showing that we shouldn't press people for tithes. This leads me to discuss another quandary over whether to address slander publicly at all or to discuss what many see as mere personal drama, some friends think that I should ignore the slander and those who seek to defame me, while others think that if I do not refute the slander that the accusations must be true. There is a a very wayward concept that a lot of people treat as a rule of thumb that they it's wayward because they treat it as a rule of thumb that silence is consent silence is not always consent Yahshua Christ was silent before his accusers but that certainly does not mean that he consented with them I went through this in 2011 and 12 and 13 and it dragged on with Eli James. Initially, I only sought to address him on issues of scriptural interpretation which led to our differences. And he in turn only made personal attacks and tossed around pejoratives, attempting to defame my character because I was mean and hateful and an exterminationist. When he pretended to address the issues, he was only one-sided and he used straw-man arguments rather than actual and substantial citations from my work.
Now, last December, and a few times in the spring of last year, I began discussing, and when I say last December, I mean December of 2017. I'm sorry. I began discussing and exposing as a fraud a certain heresy that Ryan Brennan and Michael Brandenburg sought to introduce into Christian identity, which is the so-called prosperity gospel. And I addressed that error in several podcasts solely on the basis of Scripture. This heresy has created sharp divisions between us, but they will not admit that the real reason for the division is their heresy. Rather, they look to slander my character, and by doing so, they hope to cover up the real reason they despise me, which is simply that I would not go along with their prosperity fantasies. There are very many morally repulsive people who have been involved in white nationalism and even in Christian identity. For example, the former would-be Posse Comitatus member, Aryan Nations leader, and recurring television talk show guest, August Kreese, is now serving 50 years in prison for raping his own daughters. But Kreese had a long history of perversion before that charge was ever brought to court. Not all reprobates are as noteworthy. However, I am certain that most long-time identity Christians can recall at least a short list of similar examples. James McManus is another one, the man who sells meth to little children. But it has occurred to me that Christ and most morally reprehensible men who attempt only to promote themselves as leaders of something, have left little of substance after they are gone, because they really spent all of their time in their perversions, rather than in doing anything that is actually worthwhile. It is evident that men should not choose leaders because they have big mouths and promote themselves to be leaders. Otherwise, the result would be many more like August Christ, or maybe it's Kreese, K-R-E-I-S. I think it's Christ. There may well be many more already like Christ, and they just haven't been revealed yet. Fifteen years ago, if someone sought to defame August Kreese, or Christ, or Hal Turner, a dozen others would have jumped to their defense. Other men who have documented imperfections seem to survive defamation, and James Wickstrom comes to mind. But I must admit that at least Wickstrom did more good for our Christian identity message than Christ or Turner ever did, and for years to come at least some of his efforts will survive. It was Wickstrom who had introduced Clifton Emmerheiser to what we call two-seed-line Christian identity. This is our dilemma. So often, when men disagree on principles, 
one side or the other takes to using slander, personal attacks, as a weapon in order to distract others from the real issues. One reason they seem to get away with this so easily is because Christian identity as a whole has been plagued with a long history of men like August Christ and Hal Turner. But since Yahshua Christ our God assures us that all sin shall ultimately be brought to light, we must trust in him to expose the pretenders, lest we ourselves be found as false witnesses and suffer the punishment we thought that we could exact on others. Many true identity Christians had always despised August Christ or other pretenders of the past, such as Hal Turner, Jeremy Visser, Martin Lindstedt. But ultimately, those men created their own undoing. Unfortunately, men fool men all the time. But no man will fool Yahweh our God. If a man is a pretender, he will come to his own end, and in that end, everyone will know it. But a man who spreads rumors and slanders, especially where there is no real and tangible sin involved, exposes himself as a fraud and should be ostracized for making condemnations without first having tangible sin and appropriate witnesses. While it is not evident in the King James Version, for this reason Paul had written in 1 Timothy chapter 5 verse 19, an accusation against an elder you must not receive publicly, except by two or three witnesses. Any public pronouncement against another man which is not accompanied by two or three credible witnesses and independent witnesses is a slander. Now returning to this man whom we had opened our home to for a year, but who is now slandering us, he has already publicly joined himself to the prosperity gospel hucksters. So if we disagree with someone and we are forced to part ways, is it really proper to join with heretics in order to campaign the person we disagreed with? That act alone should discredit him forever in the eyes of any true identity Christian who may witness it and it reveals that he only had an agenda in the first place because he has openly betrayed the principles he claimed to have only a short time ago. This individual's agenda is now obvious to me, but others may never understand it without sorting through propaganda, lies, misrepresentations, and endless accounts from either side of the dispute. And who has much time for that? When the charity of one man for another ends abruptly, there must be a good and serious reason for it. But whether there is any fault on the part of the giver is immaterial, and a man who extends his charity to another, especially for a considerable period of time,
should never suffer blame when he chooses to discontinue that charity for whatever reason. On the other hand, when someone who has been the recipient of charity for a period of time suddenly begins to accuse and slander the man who had once nourished him, we must wonder just what sort of person would bite the proverbial hand that fed him. Such people, whom the scripture labels as backbiters, must be ostracized and rooted out of the assemblies of Christ. Citing scriptures which speak of brotherly love, and which encourage men to be hospitable and charitable, and in that manner using those scriptures as some sort of weapon in order to extort charity from a fellow Christian is not a righteous act and does not deserve to be rewarded with anything but condemnation. There is a huge difference between hospitality and charity. Every white man or woman whom I encounter is worthy of my hospitality so long as they respond in kind. So, in a way, hospitality must be earned, although it should not have to be earned, which is a paradox. You extend hospitality to someone, and if they show that they are not worthy by granting you kindness in return, you withdraw your hospitality. So generally, good and hospitable white folks can indeed have a sure and just expectation of receiving hospitality in return for their hospitality. But charity is different. You cannot do anything to earn charity, and you should never have an expectation of charity. You have no entitlement to charity and you should never feel as if you are so entitled. If I extend charity to anyone, it is out of love, and because I believe that they need it, both for edification and sustenance, because they need my help, and without it, they may have, they may have no other means of survival. Other forms of charity are less obvious, such as merely preparing a meal for friends, or sharing an evening cloth. And those simple forms of charity are more common among Christians. But even if I extend charity to anyone, that does not necessarily mean that they have an entitlement to my continued charity. Displaying the attitude that one has an entitlement to charity is the surest way to be cut off from charity as a result of one's own arrogance. This I have had to do recently. I have had to cut off my charity towards this particular individual and I did not do it lightly. But now the parasite is arrogant enough 
to defame me as soon as my charity for him had ended. He has joined himself to Michael Brandenburg and Ryan Brennan, who is another former recipient of my charity, and who turned on me because, after several years, I would not accept his prosperity gospel heresy. If anyone believes the slander currently being spread by Sonny Eanes, they should be held to the same trial, and they should open their home to him. We shall see how they are treated in turn. If anyone believes his slander and does not open their home to him, because he is once again in need of a home, then they are hypocrites. Norman Sonny Eanes is homeless, and he needs help, or at least he insists that he needs help. If you agree with his slander, and you are not the one helping him, then you are a hypocrite. For my part, even though I may again take the risk of suffering from backbiters, I will continue to be kind to all those whom I perceive are of my kind, and that is the ultimate thesis behind Clifton's paper this evening. As a side note, I predicted that Sonny Eanes would slander me when I gave, nearly a month ago, my ten years at Christagenia rant. I'll call it a rant. My ten years at Christagenia discourse, how about that, about a month ago, as I had said, and it's posted on the Christagenia forum to this day. With this, we shall present Clifton Emma Heiser's paper, Be Kind to Your Kind. The primary object of this paper is to bring to the fore the word kind, as used in scripture, of a race of people, and secondly, as that benevolent nature found inherent within a single lineage of people. You will notice I have used the word kind in both of these senses in the above title. The word kind is the root for the word kindred, or kind red, Clifton making a pun because the word Adam means to be rosy or ruddy. Oddly enough, the new college edition of the American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language shows the same root word in its list of Indo-European word derivatives for both of these senses of meaning. Now, as a digression, for many years I used this same dictionary which Clifton cites here throughout my own studies of scripture and the biblical languages and the writing which resulted. I don't remember exactly why I bought it, but I date my books when I receive them. And this one says September 1998. Looking at Clifton's website, he recommended that dictionary in his Watchman's Teaching Letter Number 5, which was published 
that very same month and nearly a year before I actually started to get to know him. So it is very likely that I ordered my copy because of Clifton's recommendation, since even though his ministry was rather new, I was already on his mailing list at that early time. I believe I was on his mailing list since Watchman's teaching letter number three, which was in July of 1998, thanks to a friend named Ralph Daigle, who was also a lifelong friend of James Wickstrom. In an appendix to that dictionary is a long list of many pages of supposed Indo-European root words, or basically representations of syllables that form words with common meanings in multiple European and Central Asian languages. Many of the entries are very good, but it must be kept in mind that the concept itself is only a proposition. That the list is mainly theoretical, and also that there may be other valid explanations as to why so many homonyms, which are similar sounding words, homonyms with similar meanings are found in so many European languages. For our part, we ourselves would assert that the European and related Asian languages, such as Sanskrit, have their origin in Hebrew, Persian, Akkadian, or the language of the Assyrians, and other related languages from in and around ancient Mesopotamia. But the list virtually ignores any Hebrew cognates with European languages, of which we ourselves have listed hundreds. If their list is valid, our list is valid. At least as valid. Probably more. Clifton continues, Significantly, the Adam kind, Strong's number 120, Clifton stressing the use of that word kind, the race of Adam. Significantly, the Adam kind can take the life of most anything, but, or except, another Adamic kindred man. And Clifton is citing Genesis chapter 9, verse 6, where it says, Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. At Ruth chapter 2 verse 20, the translators chose both the English words kindness and kinsmen in close proximity. The following are the definitions of the word kind as used as an adjective and secondly as a noun. Interestingly, both are derived from the same Indo-European root, gena, gena, or G-E-N-E. -E. Some people might say gene, but that's not correct. In the ancient languages, in ancient Latin and Greek, 
and I'm sure in Hebrew and other languages as well, because it often is in some dialects interchanged with the letter K. In ancient languages, the letter G was pronounced, always pronounced, as hard, G. The letter K, of course, is K. So we could see where Gena would become kind with a few other short changes or brief changes. In English, we also had the word kine, K-I-N-E, of certain cattle. So first we see that at least some linguists believe that the English word kind is indeed a direct relation to the Greek word genea, which is race, and the Latin word gens, which is a clan, a tribe, or even a nation. However, more importantly, Clifton's thesis here may be summarized in the assertion that both meanings of the word kind are inextricably intertwined with one another, so that in many contexts one cannot truly exist without the other. Therefore, Clifton presents both definitions and word origins, along with an exhibition of other related words from the aforementioned dictionary. Kind. This is kind as an adjective. Kinder or kindest. Of a friendly nature. Generous or hospitable. Warm-hearted. Good. Charitable. Helpful. Showing sympathy or understanding. Humane. Considerate. Kind to animals. Forbearing. Tolerant. Charitable. Courteous, thoughtful, generous, liberal, agreeable, beneficial. Old English, Middle English, I'm sorry, Middle English, kind, K-Y-N-D-E. Old English, gekind, or gekind, G-E-C-Y-N-D-E, which meant natural or innate. That word, gekind, gekinda, is an Old English compound word which means primarily that which is in accordance with nature or the usual course of things, according to the Bosworth Toller Anglo-Saxon Dictionary, which is available freely on the internet. The GE prefix being a collective prefix in Old Saxon and the kinda or kind, C-Y-N-D-E, being a forerunner of our word kind. Continuing with the definition, synonyms, kind, kindly, kind-hearted, benign, benevolent, gracious, compassionate. These adjectives apply to persons and their actions when they show evidence of concern or sympathy for others. Kind and kindly, are approximately interchangeable in describing persons and their natures, with reference to acts that reflect consideration or sympathy. Kindly is more common.
kind-hearted especially suggests an innate tendency to behave in such a manner. Benign, B-E-N-I-G-N, implies gentleness by nature, benevolent, charitableness and desire to promote others' welfare, gracious courtesy and warmth, especially to those at a disadvantage, and compassionate, a tendency to be moved to pity easily. Now for the second definition and use of the word kind from the same dictionary. Kind, a variety, sort, type. The kind of people who are cheerful in the morning. A class or category of similar or related individuals. What kind of dog is that? And then in a more rare use, a mode of action, manner, or way, and an archaic use, nature within an order. That's the use that we will focus on here. Uses two and four, actually. A class or category of related individuals, and nature within an order are the true historical historical meanings of this word kind the direction the, the dictionary directs us to see the synonyms at the word type a kind of a rough approximation of the category expressed to differ in kind is to differ in nature not simply in degree with produce or commodities rather than with money we may pay in kind things of like value in the same manner or with something equivalent accordingly returned the slight in kind and that's much the same meaning and then in informal almost slang English it can mean I'm kind of hungry meaning somewhat hungry now at this point Clifton proceeds by citing the Indo-European Roots Appendix in the dictionary, to which the definitions for both meanings of the word kind make reference. I didn't read them as I read the definitions. I kind of skipped a few things. But both definitions tell us to see the Indo-European root word gena, G-E-N-E, in the appendix. For the audio presentation of this paper, we will read some of the statements and list some of the terms found under that word gena in the appendix, but probably not all of them. And remember that this is a theoretical root word for these related words which we find in Greek, in Latin, in English and also in German and other European languages but we will concentrate on the Greek Latin and English for our purposes here the appendix to the American Heritage College Dictionary in the Indo-European roots appendix under the word gena also gen g-e-n to give birth, beget, 
with derivatives referring to aspects and results of procreation and to familial and tribal groups. In other words, the dictionary, the linguist who created this appendix for the dictionary, the linguist sought to widely describe what this Indo-European root word could have meant by judging how it is used in these several languages where it exists. And he goes on to say, in a suffixed zero-grade form, ginyo, in Germanic, Germanic, kunyam, or family, or race, in Old English, kin, C-Y-N, or race. In Germanic, it was K-U-N-J-A-M, and that's how he spelled it, but that J is pronounced like a Y, so it's not kunjam, it's kunyam. In English, it's shortened to kin, C-Y-N, or race, family, or kin. Kuningas, or king, in Old English, kinning, or king. In Germanic, kundjaz, K-U-N-D-J-A-Z, which is a family or race. And in Old English, that equivalent is kind, or gekind, or gekinda, which we had just discussed, and which meant origin, birth, race, family, or kind. The Germanic kundiz, K-U-N-D-I-Z, natural or native. And again, they refer us to the Old English gekinda, which is natural, native, or fitting. The Germanic variant kinth, K-I-N-T-H, in Old High German is kind. And we see words such as kindergarten. In Latin, the word gens, G-E-N-S, or the stem gent, or gent, G-E-N-T, race, or clan in Latin, gives us the word gens, gentile, gentle, and genteel, and also gendarme, which is more or less French, I believe. The full-grade form, genes, that's gen with a suffix, in Latin, genus, or the stem, gener, for general, generate, generate, generation, generic, generous, genre, gender, genus, congener, congenial, degenerate, Engender, miscegenation. Now in Greek, the words genos and genea, which are race or family, and from which we get words, and the Greeks got words such as genealogy, genocide, genotype, heterogenous. The suffix genes, meaning born, which we see in suffixes gen and geni. G-E-N and G-E-N-Y. 
Another suffixed full-grade form, genio, in the Latin, genius, procreative divinity or inborn tutelary spirit or innate quality is what a genius is in Latin, genius and genial, Latin ingenium, which is inborn character, from which we get words such as ingenious or ingenuous or engine. Another form, gena, in Latin, indigena, born, in a pla- born to be born in a place, to be indigenous. Another form, genuo, or the Latin, ingenuous, born in a place, native, natural, or freeborn. Ingenuous is the English equivalent. Another form, genmen, gives us the Latin word German, a shoot or a bud or an embryo or a germ, G-E-R-M-E-N, and also German, germane to be authentic, germinal or germinate. Another form, geneti, in Greek, genesis, birth, beginning. The Greeks reduplicated forms, gignere, the past participle of genitus, to beget, and from that we get words such as genital, genitive, genitor, gent, gingerly, congenital, primogeniture, progenitor, progeny. The Greek verb, gignestahi, to be born also belongs to this family, along with the form, the suffix form, G-N-O in Latin, giving us words such as benignus, bene, added to this word, gives us the word beline, benign, I'm sorry, benign, and the word mal, meaning ill, male, meaning ill or bad, gives us malignous or malignant. So that's where we get our words benign and malign. Another form they consider an extended form, G-N-A as a prefix in Latin, gives us the word pregnas, the Latin equivalent of pregnant. See how much of our language comes from Greek and Latin. Another form, Gnasco, becoming Gnasco in Latin, gives us Gnaski, which is G-N-A-S-C-I, or the G being dropped, N-A-S-C-I, which gives us the words Gnatus or Natus, Natus from which we get nation, right? That gives us, that means Gnaski or Naski, Organatus ornatus in Latin, meaning to be born, gives us the English words such as naive, nascent, natal, nation, native, nature. Ni, noel, which is a French word. Agnate, adnate, cognate, conate, innate, innate, neonate. And puny, from a word that looks like it should be pronounced 
Puisne, P-U-I-S-N-E. It's French. I've seen it before, but I have no idea how to pronounce it. And even Renaissance. All of these words are related to that stem, gena, or gen, or gen. Another form, <coughs> G-O-N-O, gano, in Greek, ganos, as a suffix also, refers to a child, a procreation, a seed, from which we get words such as gonad, gonium, the prefix gano, archgonium, and epigone, or epigon, E-P-I-G-O-N-E. Another form appears in Persian, gen, in the Persian zadan, to be born. It's a very similar word but that G somehow becomes a Z. Persian Zata, born. In Azad, free, Azetarak. And another form which appears in Sanskrit, that they relate to this word, has an odd meaning, produced by worms. And they give us another reference to a different Indo-European stem. Now, it is not unreasonable that the same and related words also have two meanings in English which show a relationship between hospitality and race. To be kind and to be of a kind. To be gentle or humane. And to be of a generation or gen a clan, or a race. The same relationship between race and hospitality holds true of the word human, which was derived from the Latin word humanus. In English, the word human refers to a man, but another derivative, humane, is showing compassion or benevolence, or to be kind or kind-hearted. In Latin, humanus carries those same and similar meanings, but also refers to a man in the sense of being mortal. So, our very language, kind and kind, generation and gentle and genteel and gentleman, human and humanus, our and humane. Our very language reflects the natural course which things are expected to follow. And that is the meaning of that old Saxon word, gekind. Speaking of African blacks in the first century before Christ, Theodore Siculus had said, in part, as for their spirit, they are entirely savage and display the nature of a wild beast. Not so much, however, in their temper as in their ways of living, for they are all squalid all over their bodies. They keep their nails very long like the beasts, and are as far removed as possible from human kindness to one another. 
and speaking as they do with a shrill voice, and cultivating none of the practices of civilized life as these are found among the rest of mankind, they present a striking contrast when considered in the light of our own customs. Still acting in that same manner today, how they could be considered human when they are anything but humane is only a mystery. Clifton now responds to the list of words derived from Gena in that appendix and has a digression where he lambasts some of the poor ideas or or I should say one of the poor ideas which passes for which passes for scholarship among certain identity Christians. He says, we should notice a couple of things about the above appendix definition from Indo-European root Gena. It happens that Gena is also the root word for Noel, as found in the Christmas carol, and its meaning is to be born. I mention this because there are a lot of people in Israel identity going around it saying that it means no God, which is pretty childish and ridiculous. They are erroneously taking the English word no and the Hebrew word el and combining them, spawning a false premise. Even worse, Noel is, of course, French, and neither English nor Hebrew. In pointing this out, Clifton says, I'm in no way advocating the pagan observance of the winter solstice. It's just a matter that when we make such charges, we should know what we are, what we are talking about. More importantly, Gena is the Indo-European root for the Greek term Ganos or Genos. I'm going to make another small or brief digression. It's not really a far cry that Noel comes from Gena. And that's mostly because in ancient Greek, that syllable G E N E, or that word particle, I should call it, because it was really actually two syllables, Gena. All the vowels being pronounced, there being no silent vowels like we have in English. That word Gena was very often elided and the first vowel was dropped out into words like Genosco and other similar words that just began with a G and then an N and then a vowel. And from there, in certain European languages, the G was eventually dropped from the pronunciation. And there are clear examples of that in the English words gnome, G-N-O-M-E, and new, which is G-N-U, referring to the animal. There are probably other examples of that. So, if the G was eventually also dropped from the spelling once writing became common, 
it's not a far stretch to see how Gana gave us words like Noel, which means to be born. And it's the meaning of the term that identifies the process that must have happened over time, which led to that result. Now, Clifton wants to show how many times in Scripture these words appear in contexts which refer to race, something which is dismissed by the organized denominations and especially in relation to the New Testament. So even if some of the Hebrew and Greek terms are from different root words, he employs a source which focuses on the word kind where it appears in English. So he continues on the word kind and other derivatives of this gena where they appear in English or in Greek because Clifton discusses that as well. So Clifton continues with that in mind meaning his digression we will go to an expository dictionary of New Testament words by W.E. Vine on the translated word kind and Vine says that it's a noun and he gives various words that it was translated from and the first is genos Strong's number 1085 akin to ginomahi which is a verb which means to become in Greek denotes a family in Acts chapter 4 verse 6 kindred in Acts chapter 7 verse 13. Race, or in the King James Version, kindred, in Acts chapter 13, verse 26. Stock, an offspring, Acts 17, 28, Revelation 22, 16. A nation, or a race, in Mark 7, 26. And Acts chapter 4, 36, a man of Cyprus by race, now, I dispute with that in my translation, and I have a man of Cyprus by birth, a man of the country of Cyprus, because this particular man was a Judean. It continues, genos does not mean a country. The word here signifies parentage, and no, I would say that the word there signifies birth. There are other examples of that, clear examples, and we'll discuss them a little later on. They're mentioned again. In Acts chapter 7, 19, it means race or kindred. Acts chapter 18, verses 2 and 24, by race or born. And there it means birth as well. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, countrymen. In Galatians 1.14, countrymen, or nation. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, stock. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which we will present later through Clifton's work, it means race, where the King James has generation.
It is a kind, a sort, a class in Matthew chapter 13, verse 47. A kind in some manuscripts in Matthew 17:21. Kind in Mark 9:29. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 10 and 28, kinds, where the King James has diversities. And here we see W. E. Vine at least admit, even if he didn't apply it properly in all places, he at least admitted that the word genos has a racial connotation. Although in relation to the scattered tribes of Israel and the promises to Abraham, modern churches deny those plainly evident implications. Clifton continues from Vine's examination of the word kind, as it is sometimes derived from another word, fusis, among its various meanings denotes the nature, the natural constitution or power of a person or thing, and is translated kind in James chapter 3 verse 7 twice, once of a kind of beast and again of mankind, or literally humankind. And Vine directs his readers to see his definitions for nature and natural. In James 3.7 in the Christiania New Testament, we translated fusus as species in order to distinguish it from genos or genea. Still, continuing with Vine, as he describes words which in the King James Version were translated as kind, he says in his notes under this entry, the indefinite pronoun tis, some, or a certain one, or just one, is used adjectively as an adjective, with the noun aparche, which means the chief or first, to mean first fruits in James 1.18, a kind of, in 1 Corinthians 15.37, some other kind or some other grain. And, or some one of the rest, the word loipus. In 2 Corinthians 6.13, this word is for a recompense, a recompense in like kind. And the point is it's sometimes this indefinite pronoun as some or something or someone or anyone or a certain one is sometimes translated as kind in the King James Version. That's not really important to our discussion here, but it's part of the examination of the words, so it's necessarily included. Vine continues, kind is an adjective to be kind, kindly, or kindness are translated from words such as crestos, which is serviceable, good, or pleasant, good or gracious of people. And crestos is translated as kind at Luke chapter 6 verse 35, speaking of God. In Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32, and joined upon believers. And Vine recommends his readers to see the entries at words such as better, or easy, or good, or gracious.
And then kind is also translated from the Greek word agathos, agapis, which means good. And it's translated as kind in Titus chapter 2, verse 5. The verb krestuomahi, related to that adjective krestos, which is akin to krestos, means to be kind. And it is spoken of love in 1 Corinthians 13.4. And the noun, krestotes, which is also akin to that adjective krestos, is used of good-heartedness, goodness of heart, kindness. And it's translated as kindness in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 6. In Galatians 5.22, it is gentleness. It is also in Ephesians 2.7, Colossians 3.12, and Titus chapter 3, verse 4. Another word, philanthropia, from the words for philos, or loving, and anthropos, or man, denotes kindness, and that's the way it's translated in the King James Version in Acts chapter 28, verse 2, of that which was shown by the inhabitants of Melita to the shipwrecked voyagers, meaning Paul and Luke and his company. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4, it is used of the kindness of God. As an adverb, it is translated as kindly in Acts chapter 27, verse 3, where Vine says the King James Version has courteously. Clifton now responds to the definitions of W.E. Vine. We should be starting to see the close connection between the word kind as a race of people and kind as the genetic nature of that same race. Now there are some in Israel identity who claim that the Bible nowhere speaks of race. But it should be obvious from W.E. Vine that it's a matter of finding the right Hebrew and Greek term as we see above. Now he's speaking of Ted Wyland and Stephen Jones and James Brueggemann and the cast of other characters who basically are Judeo-Christians that hold or uphold some identity truths, but certainly not anywhere near enough truth. Clifton says, now we will go to the enhanced Strong's lexicon for the word kind, found under Strong's number 1085. The Greek word genos, it is in the New Testament in 21 occurrences. The authorized version, or King James Version, translates it as kind five times, kindred three times, offspring three times, nation twice, stock twice, born twice diversity once, and translated miscellaneously three times. I didn't look them up.
It is defined as meaning race, offspring, family, stock, race, or nation, nationality, or descent from a particular people. The aggregate of many individuals of the same nature, kind, sort. When reading definitions from Strong's Concordance, and especially in the original version, the Old Concordance, one must note the differences between the actual meaning of the word, the definitions, and the way it was translated in the King James Version. Sometimes readers confuse the two aspects of these Strong's definitions, although this newer enhanced version does better to distinguish them. The original Strong's just had a dash, a colon followed by a long dash. In the definition in Strong's original lexicon, you'll find towards the end a colon followed by a long dash and everything after that long dash is not the definition of the word. Rather it is only a list of the various ways in which the translators of the King James Version had translated the word. And some of the items in each list are accompanied with symbols that stand for certain things such as metaphorical translations and idiomatic translations and things like that. Strong's never marked wrong translations, that's for sure. Now Clifton cites two other sources on the Greek word genos, which is related, as we saw, in that appendix of Indo-European root words to the English word for kind. They come from the same root, ultimately. The New American Standard Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek dictionaries on Strong's Greek number 1085, or genos, family, offspring, birth, countrymen, descendant, descent, family, kind, kinds, nation, native, race. Now, from when I said birth, everything from that point forward has the same colon and a dash employed by Strong's original lexicon, so they evidently followed the same convention. But genos, the definition of genos provided here is simply family or offspring. And all those other Definitions are merely the King James interpretation of the word in various contexts. They're not all bad, and, and actually most of these are pretty good, and they're actually fine, but sometimes that's not the case. Now from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, abridged, page 117, Genos, Posterity, Family, as in Acts 17.28, all are related to God, and Clifton corrects that definition by interjecting the term sick, followed by the phrase 
all atomites. And individually, in Revelation chapter 22:16, a descendant, where Genos appears in reference to Christ and the house of David, a descendant, not a representative. And then secondly, people, for example, the Jewish, and Clifton corrects that to Judean, the Judean people, in Galatians 1.14, Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, Christians, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, quoting Isaiah chapter 43, verse 20, and of course that doesn't refer to Christians, that's only their conjecture, where Peter says that you are a chosen race to his readers. The same passage in First Peter proves where he quotes from Hosea that he was speaking to the scattered children of Israel. Third, from this theological dictionary of the New Testament, their third example of the meaning of genos, kind, for example, e.g., species of animals or plants, but also tongues, citing 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and that's correct. Surely the Christians at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9, this is Clifton's response, surely the Christians at 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 were Israelites, as Isaiah chapter 43 demonstrates. It's amazing how blind the lexicographers are, and that's absolutely true. At this point, it would be advisable to go to the Greek word 1074, genos, or I'm sorry, genea, in the enhanced Strong's lexicon, for it is related to 1085, which is genos. Now, Clifton turns from genos to this related Greek word genea, and we must bear in mind, and I already said this a few paragraphs ago, that as we saw in the discussion on Indo-European roots, these Greek words are early cognates of our English word kind. So Clifton turns to this enhanced Strong's Dictionary at Genea. It's in the New Testament in 42 occurrences twice as many as genos. The King James Version translates it as generation 37 times, as time twice, as age twice, and as nation once. Fathered, birth, nativity is how they define it. That which has been begotten, men of the same stock, a family, and then secondly, the several ranks of natural descent, the successive members of a genealogy, and then metaphorically, a race of men very much like each other in endowments, pursuits, and character. And then, especially in a bad sense, a perverse race. I would rather think it meant a race that is perverted. The whole multitude of men, in its third sense, the whole multitude of men living at the same time, 
and then in its fourth sense, and I object to both of these, an age. For example, the time ordinarily occupied by each successive generation. A space of 30 to 33 years. And here I must interject again. Genea should not have been translated as generation on many occasions. Or I should say on so many occasions. I think there are only one or two in scripture when it should be translated as generation. But it is also demonstrable that generation did not mean in 1611 what it means to us today. However, even when it does appear in scripture and describes all the people living at a particular time for which it is used on occasion, it still cannot be separated from its original meaning of race. The several ranks in its second sense, which they admit here, the several ranks of natural descent, the successive members of the genealogy. It still cannot be separated from its original meaning of race. It describes all of the people of a particular race who are living at a given time and not merely all living people. Clifton continues in response to the definition. The lexicon says a presumed derivative here. They presume that Genea is a derivative of Genos. With the remainder of the definition, it would seem more like a certainty. Actually, they didn't mean to imply that Genea is derived from some other word. We cannot tell <coughs> whether Genea is derived from Genos, or if perhaps the opposite is true, or even if both forms were derived from some earlier and obsolete root in apparent language. Now Clifton cites another definition of Genea from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament abridged, where it describes the word thusly. Genea means A. Birth, descent B. Progeny C. Race and D. Generation In the New Testament, it is common in the Synoptic Gospels, rare in Paul, and absent from John. That's true, John used Genos, but he didn't use Genea. It mostly means generation, and is often qualified Adulterous, meaning it's often accompanied with an adjective that qualifies it. Adulterous in Mark 8.38. Evil in Matthew 12.45. Unbelieving and corrupt in Matthew 17, verse 17. The formula. This generation is very common, citing first Mark chapter 8, verse 12. Crooked generation in Acts 2.40. Philippians 2.15 is based on Deuteronomy 32.5 and then they're referring us to Matthew 17.17 17, and Deuteronomy 32.20 which I didn't bother to look up. I thought they would only be distractions. The use of generation by Jesus expresses his comprehensive purpose 
He aims at the whole people and is conscious of their solidarity in sin. This is all theological bullshit. Gedea has the sense of age in Matthew 1.17, in Acts 13.36, Ephesians 3.5, Colossians 1.26, and of manner in Luke 16.8. In Acts 8.33, there is an allusion to Isaiah 53.8 in a literal meaning of the obscure original. Here the lexicographer, Clifton says, Here the lexicographer places birth, descent, progeny, and race in the first, second, third, and fourth positions of importance, and then foolishly states that it mostly means generation, an obvious contradiction. No doubt he made this statement as an apology for some of the translators. We must give him credit, though, for he at least placed the primary definitions out in front. And rather, Clifton was being kind. I would say that, of course, he was apologizing for the translators. And not only that, but the definition accepts the mistranslations. I would assert that Ganea never means age. It means generation only in a couple of instances in the New Testament. It is usually used to describe or refer to a race and always has a racial connotation regardless of the context. Now Clifton concludes with the Greek portion of his word study and says, before we go to the Hebrew, it should be mentioned, in addition to the Greek numbers 1074, Genea, and 1085, Genos, there are also the Greek words, Clifton only included numbers in his original essay, I'll just substitute them with the words, Genea Logeo, which is a verb, a verb form of Geneologia, which is genealogy, Geneo, which is to be born, Genema, which is that which is born, Genesis, which is one's origin of birth, sort of like Genesis, I believe, and Genetos, which are closely related, and Clifton missed a few others, especially Genesis. But we will leave it here. Genesis means origin, not necessarily beginning in time, but beginning in source. The name of our book of Genesis describes the beginning of our race in source, not in time. The most used word for race, Clifton says, is genos, and it is found 21 times in the New Testament. Of these 21 occurrences, all but five have a racial signification. Now, Clifton did not elaborate, but what he referenced here is easy to determine. The word genos should be birth in Acts chapter 4, verse 36, Acts chapter 18, verse 2, and Acts chapter 18, verse 24. And it should be sort in 
1 Corinthians chapter 12 at verses 10 and 28, and in 1 Corinthians 14.10, where it refers in all three places to languages. So it could be types. So it is really all but six rather than all but five. Now he moves on to the various meanings of kind as the word was employed by the translators of the Old Testament. And this is really a pretty short section of his essay. From the enhanced Strong's lexicon on the Hebrew for the word kind, or Strong's number 4327. So I suppose this was the only word translated as kind in the King James Old Testament. Number 4327, mean, or min, mean, from an unused root meaning to portion out. The Greeks had a corresponding verb, the Greek word meno. From an unused root meaning to portion out, it appears 31 times in the King James Version. It is translated as kind 31 times. Kind, sometimes a species, usually of animals. Additional information. Groups of living organisms belonging in the same created kind if they have descended from the same ancestral gene pool. This does not preclude new species because this represents a partitioning of the original gene pool. Information is lost or conserved, not gained. A new species could arise when a population is isolated and inbreeding occurs. By this definition, a new species is not a new kind, but a further partitioning of an existing kind. A mean can also mean a part or a portion. This, I am persuaded, is the ultimate root of English words such as minute or minute in all its meanings and related words such as minuscule through the Latin word minutus. The Hebrew word Ar in Hebrew means mountain, so the name Armenia is from a Hebrew compound word meaning mountain parts, because a mean can be a part, the mountainous portion. Clifton now comments upon the definition from Strong's lexicon. This last sentence, where it said, by this definition a new species is not a new kind, but a further partitioning of an existing kind. This last sentence is important, for there are those in Israel identity who claim that the impostor Jews are not biblically designated as a race. Though racially mixed as they are, the proper biblical term is race. Though they constitute a new species from a further partitioning they are generated into existence as a mixed kind. Hence, John the Baptist was calling them a race of vipers in Matthew chapter 3, verse 7.
It is a blatant error to spiritualize this passage, as many do. And, of course, Clifton was once again referring to men such as Ted Wyland, James Brueggemann, Stephen Jones, and other clowns who deny the references to race in the New Testament, not understanding the true nature of the Jew. The various white Adamic races are indeed further partitioning of the original Adamic race, which biologists often describe as speciation, and all other races are mongrel corruptions. Now Clifton quickly changes the topic and continues under the subtitle, Walking Through Scripture on Kind. As mentioned above, the Greek word genos is used more often than any other word in the New Testament to mean race. Probably the most important passage where it is used is in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But ye are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And Clifton notes, it should be noted that the RSV, the Revised Standard Version, has translated 1 Peter 2.9 properly where it has race. Actually, there are over a dozen popular translations which rendered the word correctly, the word genos, correctly as race. But the dummies all think Peter was talking about Jews or about Christians. When we aptly, when we apply it correctly within the context of Peter's epistle to white non-Jews, the same dummies accuse us of being racists. So, Clifton proceeds and he says, we will now consider other passages where genos is used. Mark chapter 7 verse 26. The woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by race. Acts chapter 4 verse 6. And Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the kindred, that word genos, which is, in this instance, Clifton would say racial kindred, of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And I believe in that instance in the Christogenian New Testament, we simply have race, the race of the high priest. If we examine Josephus, we can come to the conclusion that the race of the high priest were Sadducees. And if we understand the history of the period of the Herods, we will also understand that they were Edomites. The apostles in Acts chapter 4 verse 6 were distinguishing the genos of the high priest 
from the genos of the Israelites, from their own genos, or the genos of the Israelite race in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 7 verse 19. Some people may argue that they only meant the family of the high priest. Acts chapter 7 verse 19. The same dealt subtly, speaking of the Egyptians, with our kindred, or that word genos, with our race, and evil entreated our fathers, so that they cast out their young children to the end they might not live. At Acts chapter 13, verse 26, Men and brethren, children of the stock of Abraham, the racial stock, that's that word genos again, and whosoever among you feareth God, to you is the word of this salvation sent. Whosoever among them, only it being the time of the feast, only Israelites were expected to be present. Acts chapter 17 verses 28 and 29. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said. For we are also his offspring. That word genos. The Athenians that Paul was addressing. Were Jepethites. But they were nevertheless of the offspring of Adam. Paul did not talk to them about Jesus, about covenants, about the law, about redemption, but he talked to them in relation to the greater, wider promises to the Adamic race found earlier in Scripture, starting with Genesis chapter 3. For as much then as we are the genos, or racial, offspring of God, we ought not to think that the Godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone, graven by art and man's device. As much as we are the genos of God, the race of God. And as Christ explained over and over again in the Gospel, not every man is of that race. Nothing about belief there. Paul was speaking to pagans and Athenians, not even to Israelites, when you examine the history of Athens. Find that they descended from Javan, which is a name that we recognize as Ionian. Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, chapter 11, verse 26. In journeyings, often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by my own countrymen. There's that word genos, my own racial countrymen. In perils by the heathen, which are the nations other than Paul's own people. In perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness. Philippians chapter 3 verse 5 Circumcised the eighth day of the stock or the genos, the racial stock of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin a Hebrew of the Hebrews 
Revelation 22.16 I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring, or genos, the race of David, and the bright morning star. Clifton says, especially interesting is Matthew chapter 13, verse 47. In the parable of the dragnet, from verses 47 through 50, which reads as follows. And Clifton's purpose here is to establish that this word genos was used over and over again to refer to a race or races of people. Here in Matthew chapter 13, verse 47, we see the term kind. But the Greek word is genos. So it also must be referring to a race or races of people. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind. And that term is genos. Which, verse 48, which, when it was full, they drew to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but cast the bad away. So shall it be at the end of the world, or at the end of the age. The angels shall come forth, and sever the wicked from among the just, and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, in reference to this last passage, in comparison with all of the others, Clifton concludes, From this you can see very clearly that this passage completely debunks the theory of universalism. It is stated very unequivocally here that there are categorically two racial groups, good and bad, and the fact that only the good racial group will be gathered into vessels. The good group are those, only those, racially pure, descended from Adam. Just think of all the wasted time, effort, and blood thrust upon those not of our kind. And here I would say, or make the admission, as I explained at the start of this evening, that perhaps those who abused my kindness and tried to manipulate me for one reason or another and now hate me for not being manipulated have done so simply because they are not of my kind. But we must be humble and remember that we often cannot tell wheat from tares, as Clifton says. Obviously, we are not to be kind to those not of our kind. Don't get mad at me. I didn't write the book. Besides, this passage is in red letters in my Bible, referring to Matthew chapter 13, verses 47 to 50, and the parable of the net. So what kind of connotative reflections does that have on Yahshua, our Redeemer, who said those words? John the Baptist also said some racial words in Matthew chapter 3 verse 7, which are repeated in Luke 3 7. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, 
O race of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That word race is not genos, it's actually genema, a related word, something which is produced by vipers, the offspring of vipers. Yahshua the Messiah reasserted the words of John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 12, verses 33 and 34. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. You make the tree good when you marry within the law of God. You make the tree corrupt when you transgress. O race of vipers, how can ye, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. Clifton says, To follow the context of what is being said in this passage, one must first consider that at verses 31 and 32, Yahshua the Messiah had just concluded speaking about the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost, which is race-mixing. And here Clifton refers his reader to his July 2008 essay, The Unpardonable Sin. In March of 2013, I myself elaborated on the same topic in a paper titled Scatterers and Gatherers, where the words of Christ, in the words of Christ, he mentions blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the context where they were spoken, which indeed shows that race mixing is the unpardonable sin. Clifton continues, Then he speaks of either making the tree good or corrupt. Once miscegenation had taken place, it is obvious that the tree, in this instance the Jews of Revelation chapter 2 verse 9 and chapter 3 verse 9, is a corrupt tree here in verse 33 here in verse 33 of Matthew chapter 12. From this, it is evident why he called them a race of vipers, for they had mixed with the race of Cain. Again, at Matthew chapter 23, verse 33, Yahshua says, Ye serpents, ye race of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? And where Clifton said that they had mixed with the race of Cain, that is certainly true. And he cites Matthew chapter 23, verse 35, and Luke chapter 11, verse 51, in order to substantiate that. Where Yahshua Christ himself connects his adversaries to those who had killed Abel, and only Cain, who had killed the Abel and all the prophets, and only Cain killed Abel. Clifton continues, on the negative side, Yahshua first accused the Jews, and the Jews answered him at John chapter 8, verse 41, Ye do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We be not born racially. This word, genos. We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God, which of course Christ had refuted as a lie. And on the positive side, we read in 1 John chapter 2, verse 29, 
If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone that does righteousness is born of him. And that's genos, that word, 1080. The word genos, the word is not, I'm sorry, the word is not genos, but the verb geneo, which is a cognate in both of those passages. Geneo is the equivalent verb to genos. Again, at 1 John chapter 3, verse 9, whoever is born of God, that word geneo, racially born of God, does not commit sin, for his sperma, his seed, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. That it is speaking of physical seed, we will consult the enhanced Strong's lexicon on that Greek word sperma. Number 4690. 44 occurrences in the New Testament. 43 times the King James Version translates it as seed and once as issue, meaning offspring. Sperma is, one, the seed from which a plant germinates. Again, the seed or the grain or kernel which contains within itself the germ of the future plants. And then, further on, metaphorically, a seed. For example, a residue or a few survivors reserved as the germ of a new race. I would say it's just a continuation of the old race. Just as seed is kept from the harvest for the sowing. And that's what we see in a flood. The semen virile, and this is the second use of the the second set of meanings provided by the lexicon. The semen virile, the product of the semen, seed, children, offspring, progeny, and then family, race, posterity, and then finally, which I don't agree with, because it's spiritual. Whatever possesses vital force or life-giving power. And again, they're apologizing for bad church doctrine. Clifton says, Of 4690, Sperma, the enhanced Strong's lexicon adds, Of divine energy of the Holy Spirit operating within the soul by which we are regenerated. It is paramount to understand that it is necessary to be physically born of pure Adamic seed or otherwise the Holy Spirit cannot abide in us. I don't know why Clifton did not elaborate upon this as this that these last two editions To, to the Strong's definition, are evil without doubt. Paul informs us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that the resurrection is made possible through the spiritual body which is sown as a natural body. And the word sown is the Greek word spiro, a cognate of sperma. 
Clifton had said in the past that there is no such thing as spiritual sperm, and that is correct. But the lexicons merely cover for the false theology of the Universalist churches. Now moving towards Clifton's conclusion, at 1 John 5.1 we see, Whosoever believeth that Yahshua is the Christ is born of God, and that word is geneo, that cognate verb from genos. And everyone that loves him that begat him loveth him also that is begotten of him. And both of those words are that same verb, geneo, Strong's number 1080. Clifton concludes, I hope by now the reader has a better comprehension of the importance of the term kind, both as a noun and an adjective. In the book of Genesis, the phrase after his or after its kind is used 17 times and for good reason. On the contrary, never but never is anything or anyone blessed that is not after its kind ever. But Adam, speaking of Eve, said the same thing in a different way in Genesis 2.23. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Don't let anyone ever tell you that the subject of race is not spoken of in scripture for it is the main theme throughout its pages. Now we hope to have made clear the connections between kind as a noun and kind or kindness as an adjective and also have seen the relationship between similar words the same relationship between similar words human and humane. Generation, gens, and gentle, etc. If someone cannot be kind to you, perhaps it is because they are not of your kind, and in any event, they really cannot expect your kindness in return. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and good night. Yahweh willing, I will be here next week to continue my commentary on the Gospel of John. I'm actually looking forward to this one.